My name is Simon Copland. I'm one of the co-editors of Green Agenda, uh, and this is a Green Agenda panel slash debate um, titled What Even Is Democracy? Uh, so just some background. Green Agenda is a publishing site, a project of the Green Institute. Uh, we publish uh, on green ideas and thought, and we've been doing so for about two years now, three years now almost three years now, uh, and we publish essays, on a, essays, interviews and other, f other media on a regular basis um, on a whole range of different green ideas and thought. And the idea is to be sort of big picture, so we're not doing daily political analysis about you know, what Malcolm Turnbull said today and what Bill Shorten said today. We're doing things on bigger ideas, um, green philosophy and how that can impact the world um, today. The, idea of Green Agenda is not to come to conclusions but to, to sort of stoke debate and to stoke debate about big ideas and so we thought what we wanted to do is to do that today and this is why we've got you all together in seats. So we have three great panellists here. We have two questions that we're going to be asking, uh, one and then another. The idea is that our panellists are going to give five minute responses to those questions and then we're going to turn it over to you and we're going to ask in your tables to have a ten minute discussion about, those que about that question. We'll do a little bit of a report back and then we'll go to the second question and do the same. Excellent. So we have three great um, speakers today. I just want to quickly introduce our speakers. So first, over here, on your left, is Claire Ozich. Claire Ozich is the founder and co-editor of Green Agenda. Um, she has worked as a lawyer and industrial officer in the union movement and as director of policy for Greens leaders Bob Brown and Christine Milne. She is currently the executive director of the Australian Institute for Employment Rights. Uh, we then have Stephen Healy. So Stephen Healy is a Senior Research Fellow at the Institute for Culture and Society, University um, of Western Sydney, and a recent arrival to Australia. He has a doctorate in geography and his research focuses on community-based approaches to sustainable economic development. Uh, and finally, Joanne Staples is a Melbourne-based political scientist focusing on civil society and NGOs, especially environmental NGOs and the role in democracy. Her career has been in policy and advocacy, working with national NGOs involved in campaigns all over Australia, and she has played a strong role in the formative years of the Greens. Can we just welcome our panellists to start off with? Um, so I'm going to start with you, Claire, um, and I'll pass the microphone along. So our first question is, what is needed to practice democracy, whether in a group, community, or any level of government? And so this is a way of asking about what is democracy? What are its key elements? While noting democratic practice isn't just for nations, but lots of different aspects of engagement with our society. Hi, good to see everyone here. Green, before I get on with what I was going to say, um, Green Agenda's published a few pieces exploring different aspects of democracy, and three of the uh, authors of those pieces are actually in the room today, which is really awesome. So we've published um, Christine Milne, um, and we'll re we republished her piece on um, uh, her analysis that Australia is no longer a democracy, but is a plutocracy. Um, so you can find that piece on Green Agenda. Um, we've also published Joan on um, the role of non not uh, NGOs um, in our democracy, and we've published um, Gary Shapcott on um, uh, public space and public debate and grappling with uh, you know how we how we do that today in our world. So um, I would recommend uh, all three of those pieces to you as well if you're interested in democracy. So I'm going to start with a, a quote from um, a US academic called uh, Wendy Brown, who wrote a book called um, Undoing Demos, which was an analysis of um, the hollowing out of democracy by our neoliberalism. But at the beginning, she, she says this. 
Democracy is amongst the most contested and promiscuous terms in our modern political vocabulary. In the popular imaginary, democracy stands for everything, from free elections to free markets, from protests against dictators to law and order, from the centrality of rights to the stability of states, from the voice of the assembled multitude to the protection of individuality and the wrong of the dicta imposed by crowds. For some, democracy is the crown jewel of the West. For others, it is what the West has never really had, or it is mainly a gloss for Western imperial aims. Democracy comes in so many varieties. Social, liberal, radical, republican, representative, authoritarian, direct, participatory, deliberate, deliberative, plebiscite, that such claims often speak past one another. So it's kind of in that context that we wanted to have this debate today. <laughs> We're talking about something that's, um, you know, pretty big. Um, but she goes on to say, accepting the open and contestable significance of democracy is essential because I want to release democracy from containment by any particular form while insisting on its value in, con in con connotating political self-rule by the people, whoever the people are. So she brings it back to this notion of self-rule by the people, whoever the people are. So there's a couple of um, things in that, obviously self-rule, rule, the notion of power comes into democracy, and one um, definition of democracy is that it's a you know distribution of power, um, and then also of course the concept of the people, like who are the people, and the people will change depending on what um, what context we're in. Um, and the Greens, of course, one of the fundamental core pillars of the Greens is participatory democracy and the principle that uh, people affected uh, by decisions should have a say in those decisions. So. Following on from that, I want to focus uh, not so much on the bigger picture of demo democracy and the, and the state um, and parliaments and, and governance, um, but to talk a little bit about um, workplace democracy. So as Simon said, my day job um, is that I work in um, the field of industrial relations. Um, and uh, um, workplace democracy is a pretty... Um, again, a pretty core part of having fair and decent workplaces. And, you know, we all spend a fair, uh, fair amount of our time in various forms of work, whether it's paid work or unpaid work. Um, and uh, I, had a, uh, I had an event in Sydney on Wednesday uh, for my job. We had a, a public debate on um, the workplace relations system. And one of the speakers, an academic from UTS called Sarah Kane, uh, spoke about workers' voice and about how in Australia... Uh, basically, workers workers are very much silenced. We have a a legal system um, that does silence uh, workers, um, uh, and part of that um, has come about from a shift in our workplace relations laws from um, a sense of the collective to a sense of the individual. And I mention this because I think that one of the key things about democracy. Um, is very much about how we create a collective um, amongst each other. And work is just one example of how um, we, uh, we can do that, and I guess an example also of how we don't actually do that very often. So we, uh, many of us do that when we join our union, um, but there are obviously many other ways that we could, in fact, have and practice um, democracy at work if we are in our workplace creating human connection uh, with our fellow uh, workers um, and coming together collectively to talk about what our interests might be um, 
and have um, and make decisions and exercise power um, in relation to our work, the conditions of the work, but also um, the, how we perform our work. And I don't know how much time I've got, but <laughs> um, but I. Um, so the main point I'm, wa I'm wanting to say is that we have like these laws and things that can kind of stop us and you know kind of um, stop us and disencourage us from. Um, talking with each other and, and I have lots of conversations with people and they want to know what they can do in their workplaces uh, when their bosses aren't, are, um, uh, you know, aren't being good to them and their fellow workmates. And you know, apart from all the legal strategies, you know, the first thing I say is, well, just get your work colleagues together, sit down and have a conversation with each other about what's going on. Um, so I think workplace democracy is a really interesting kind of example of both how democracy has been crushed, um, but also an example of um, where um, we, as a society, I think we need to reimagine a, a, a flourishing um, democracy. And I'm not necessarily talking about institutionalised unions, although I think they're really important. I think there are other ways you could practice democracy in your workplaces. And I just want to leave on finally on this point, which is I think that workplace democracy is actually going to be very key um, to addressing the climate crisis as well. Um, because we know, yeah, so again, coming from the bottom, workers knowing what's going on in their workplaces and what needs to happen in their workplaces for their workplaces to um, uh, be uh, better in relation to the climate, I think is also a really important um, aspect. But I'll stop there. Okay. Um, so I got the email from Claire and... Um, I didn't actually see that particular question in there. I have questions like, how can we meaningfully engage in political debate across societies and encompass difference? Do we leave it to the scientists or the experts? Or is, does everyone get a vote? How can we use participation and participatory technologies? And, and something about the big state versus the small state. But I, I like that question. And um, I love Wendy Brown. I've only had a chance to see her once, but she's a very good speaker. And um, one of the points that she makes in that book on doing the demos is she says that there are, there are other values that can animate political conversation, like what is the good, um, you know, how, how are we supposed to care about one another, but that increasingly what she says uh, is that uh, neoliberalism is a kind of uh, stealthy occupation of economization of all life, so that there's only one thing that is to be done, and that's cost-benefit analysis. And then by default, what you get is the rule of experts, right? And then, we, and then it's no longer permissible to talk about other values. So that's the stark picture that she leaves us with. But interestingly enough, I don't even think she's the most depressing theorist out there about the state of democracy. Just recently, I um, came across a guy named Franco Biffo Berardi, who's an Italian autonomist, and he wrote a book called Futurability, Politics in the Age of Impotence. Um, impotence is kind of a dirty word, but I'm going to use it anyways. And essentially what he says is that we're experiencing, in, and I think the we that he's referring to is the West, is Western democracies, are experiencing a condition of impotence, and it's very much kind of the consequences of the neoliberalization of life. And he goes further and says that as um, artificial intelligence and automation takes hold and people are increasingly insecure about their economic lives, that generates this condition of impotence and it takes expression in the form of a 
politics of reaction, right? So this is his analysis, which he's offering kind of ahead of the events that we've witnessed just over the last couple of years, from Theresa May's Brexit to Trump's America to the rise of the authoritarian anti-immigrant right in Germany, Austria, um, or we could extend it and say Modi's kind of fundamentalist India, Duarte uh, in the Philippines, and Erdogan in Turkey, right? So there's this idea in Bharati's analysis that impotence leads to this feeling of uh, political reaction, right? So this is sort of the state of democracy. It becomes a context in which people express this feeling of powerlessness that takes the form of rage. Wendy, actually, in a recent address in Germany, called it a kind of wounded narcissism. And then when people feel like their ego, their sense of control and, and social status has been threatened by others, um, the tendency is to lash out. So this seems to be a current in social theory right now. And we could go on and think of it in, in symptomological terms. I'm competing with the announcement and racing against the clock. Am I doing all right here? All right. I noticed you're looking at your cell phone. There. That's just fine. Um, yeah, I mean, look, I, I don't know. I, I've been grabbed by this kind of framework. And I've, I've been thinking as well that, you know, it, it also seems to find expression, at least in the American culture, in, in the following way, right? Like, there are 50,000 people a year that kind of look like me and are slightly older who are dying from uh, the consequences of opioid addiction, right? And that's a problem that white America knows about now but has been a problem in other communities for a lot longer. Or we can think about instead of the violence turned inward, the violence turned outward in, you know, sort of fits of incredible rage that have no apparent context. So for me, like if we're going to think about what does it mean to recover a democratic ethos, and, and think big about it, right? I suspect those kind of operative cultural conditions that are under threat, and it is, it's that ability to live with others, to engage in, I think, Mary, you used the phrase in the NINA conference, the serious work of congeniality, right? How do we be hospitable with one another? And I think what it means for me is if we want to be democratic, if we want to be collective and self-governing, have meaningful autonomy in relation to our own lives and be able to live with others, what we need more than anything the space is to practice it. Um, and, and, and workplaces and workplace democracy is something I'm really quite taken with as one of the settings for that. But I think there are others. So, for example, um, the worldwide recovery movement that deals with substance abuse and addiction, right? Those are individual groups that are autonomous and self-governing. And then they have a global body that allows them to coordinate on matters of collective concern, right? So that's an example that has an 80-year history that's international, that operates in 26 languages and deals with 108 different kinds of addiction problems on a democratic basis. But it's the deep democracy kind, right, where each group is self-supporting and autonomous. Maybe we could look for examples like that and recover, like, different democratic traditions. I, you know, I know I'm preaching to the choir, and I know it's already been done, right? The Transition Town movement, for example has had real discussion about how do you take that model and bring it into thinking about, you know, how do we come up with energy action descent plans and as a community deal with ecological crises, and we could extend that into social and economic ones as well. Um, I had other depressing stuff, but <laughs> do I? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I, yeah, I can depress you thir further later on, but that was sort of my opening thought hastily sketched out here. I'll hand it over to our friend. No decision yet? So our final speaker on this question um, is Joan Staples, and then after we've Joan has spoke, um, spoken, we'll um, turn it over to you in our audience. Thank you, Joan.
Well, we've got a pretty mature political audience here today, haven't we? That you can see what the, these things are just they blips on the on the radar, you know, and they come and they go. And there's more important things that we've got to talk about. Mm. Um, now, Claire and Simon asked us to be provocative, and I thought I would draw your attention to some research that was publicised back in uh, about almost 12 months ago now, in December 2016, which said that. Um, Democracy is under threat because young people are saying they're fed up with democracy. Um, researcher from Harvard and from Melbourne University, the percentage that thought that um, it was essential to live in a democracy had fallen quite dramatically uh, since the 80s. And they were mostly millennials in particular, um, weren't very happy about it. Um, and it was, they were, we were warned that this is what's Trump, this is about Trump and the rise of Hanson and those things that. People are fed up with democracy. Now, the key um, sentence that I saw in this was that it was since the 1980s. And um, that, as we've come around with our first two previous presentations, is referring to the rise of uh, the neoliberal economics and neoliberal ideology, which has been happening since the 1980s. Thatcher, Reagan, Keating, Hawke here. Um, on top of that, though, I found then, thank goodness, and I haven't gone to that original paper yet to analyse it because I actually think that it's only two researchers um, and I need to look much more closely at their methodology to be sort of happy with their findings because I actually found some other research which came out in um, March which said that um, the... And this has actually been done by... Um, um, this was a Lowy Institute looking at Australia and saying that um, although it looked like millennials were not engaging in democracy because of not necessarily joining, they were able to indicate that there was a huge number of ways in which they did actually um, engage in democratic processes. When they were asked did they back democracy, most of them said that it only serves the interest of a few. That 40% said that. And there's no real difference between the policies of the major parties. 32%. Well, yes, okay. Um, but they also, the examples they went on to talk about was the ones which, you know, uh, those of you, I apologise for those who were in the previous session where I was also talking about the role of young people. For example, in Greece with the austerity vote, with Sanders and with Corbyn, the fact that it's particularly millennials that have been behind those. Um, the they also point to the um, to other research that in the UK shows that young Britons are um, uh, either more or likely to volunteer, engage with social issues, or express their political opinions than earlier generations. And they also went to the United States, where the Pew Centre showed that social media users are more likely than their elders to post their thoughts on on issues on political material, encouraging others to act on these political issues. So they might be uh, weary of the formal voting calendar, but they're more likely than their forebears to get involved in grassroots campaigning. Um, so what, for me, comes out of that is the, the message that what people are concerned about, actually, is the whole neoliberal ideology that's been foisted on us since the 1980s. And distrust with um, a democracy is really not necessarily distrust of what we might be possible to have and what we could get quite close to and we perhaps have known in some instances in the past, but rather distrust with where we are at the moment. And that rise of neoliberalism, which, you know, if you look at Hayek back in the 30s, 
Yeah, there, there was some sense in coming up with this market-based economic theory when they were opposing it against communism and against Nazism. But as you move through the history and then you get the think tanks being set up like the American Enterprise Institute and the, here, the IPA in the 1940s that were proposing that issue and then the Chicago School coming on, you see that big corporations recognised, oh, this is not a bad theory, you boys, let's get in. Let's promote this. And so, you know, huge amounts have obviously gone into promoting it. So we have actually had this, a developing of this theory for a long time until by the 1980s, with um, stagflation, we had Th Th Thatcher and Reagan and the Hawke-Keating government begin to introduce those economic theories. But it's not just been the economic theories, of course, it's been the ideology with it. And what we've seen is not just simply economists talking about economics. Econ economists have really pr um, preened themselves that they have moved into other disciplines. For example, in the discipline of psychology, instead of... Um, talking about the rich history that is available in psychology of different theories of human motivation. You know, and we, and we all know about, you know, Freud, sex, Adler, power, Jung, spirituality, all these other reasons of community that, that are human relations that, are, that have been put forward about what motivates humans have all been swept away. And now we're told that humans are simply motivated by the, the amount of, that they can get out of any transaction, the money, how they can compete. Um, this whole sort of thinking has permeated right throughout our society. But it is, I believe, in the process of breaking down. And I'm very conscious as an academic. When I read through the literature on um, non-government organisations and the rise of progressive thought in the 70s, you know, the academics didn't predict that. They were all caught totally unawares. They did not see it coming. And so I'm particularly conscious to put out my feelers, what is actually really going on in society, particularly with younger people, and not just focus on what the academics are saying. And I've just finished um, attending a week or so ago the Australian um, Political Studies Association conference as an academic, and I love to go along and see some of my good friends there, but I was shocked that the academics are still talking about the old systems. They're not looking at what's coming, the fact that neoliberalism is cracking and how are we going to, to step in and put new things there. The academics there are missing out on what is, I think, some of the most exciting things that they could possibly be writing about. And it's not all of them, of course. You know, some of my best friends aren't. But they, the, majority, the majority are. So you know, I just throw that in there that there is a, an interesting time coming and, you know, obviously we thank the um, Green Agenda for putting this sort of on the, the, the cards, but I think that what the immediate things are that, that certainly shown by what the three of us have got up to talk about is that the, there is a dissatisfaction with neoliberalism. People are looking for community. We as green thinkers need to be thinking about the alternatives. Obviously we're here, you're the people who are thinking about those things. Um, what do we actually want to put in its place? And I can't sort of do better than what my previous speakers have done in listing some of the prerequisites for respecting others. Um, I would also throw in the importance, I think, of, of in any institutional type arrangements, whether it just be your local um, organisation running the community garden or whether it be government, I think the, the need for some sort of balance of power. We need to think about structures in which power is shared in some way. Um, as that very valuable contribution that Madison made to our um, debate on politics is that it's important that we actually do set up our structures in that way that no, nobody can immediately become a dictator. Um, 
But the, the other um, issues of, of respect, respectful debate, um, and valuing other, valuing different opinions in, in, every, in, in, the, in our interactions and in the way in which we run our organisations and the way in which we run our lives. And they are subtle, very, very valuable things. Unfortunately, some of those subtleties have been, bitten, have been hit pretty hard by the sort of politics that we've been seeing recently. Now, that doesn't mean we have to accept that that's the way things are. And I do think it is up to every one of us that value community, that value other values, to, be, to promote those, to talk about different values and to speak in a language that is from our heart, that represents um, human emotion, that represents ethics in every way, because I, th I do feel that the community is hungry for that sort of language, for us to hear, to hear people in the public arena speaking with love and strength about ethical things that they really care about. So I'll just leave it there and happy to talk some more later. So thank you to our three panellists for that uh, initial discussion. That seems like we had some really great discussions here, which is exactly what we're trying to achieve. And so we've got now a second question that we're going to ask, which is a big state or decentralised control. How do different understandings of democracy reflect your preference? And how do or can these two ideas exist? So we're going to go down the line at the other way uh, and start with Joan. Uh, and, uh, yeah, we'll just try and keep it short and then we'll come back and have another discussion. Yeah, I'll keep it really short. I've got two sort of ideas I want to touch base with you, and I also want to be provocative with one of them too, because I was told I had to be provocative. provocative. Yeah, okay. Um, it's absolute irony, isn't it, that in this era of globalisation that we've had this rise of local movements, that you've know, got Catalonia, we've got Scotland, we've got all sorts, everywhere you look around the globe, this has been happening more and more is that local individuality is coming out at the same time as the, the world's shrinking and we've got this global way in which we can all talk to one another. You know, I talk to activists all around the world and actually feel closer sometimes to people I know in other countries who are working on the same issues than I do with people in my own street. So it's interesting sort of juxtaposition of the two. But my answer to this is that we, we need to be able to hold both in our head at once that both are incredibly valuable. And there's no reason why it has to be big or small. It's, we need all both together. Um, and there are many ways in which legal things can be expo expressed in that way. I read a fantastic article yesterday about Northern Ireland and the complexities of now that, after Brexit, how they're going to cope with the fact that they're going to have a harder or soft border there, because Northern Ireland has been part of, of Europe. Now, it was also very illuminating to me in the way in which they actually solved the, the troubles in Ireland. In Northern Ireland, you can actually be... In, in Northern Ireland, you can choose to be British, Irish or both. Now, that, so legally, that seems like that's not possible. We think we have this nation-state, that you can be many different things. There's no reason why... We cannot, as human beings, come up with creative solutions. And to me, that was a lovely solution. They're, they're both. You know, they're, obviously, they're going to struggle now with Brexit, what they're going to do about it, but I hadn't really focused fully on that solving of the troubles, that you can have a British passport, you can have an Irish passport, or you can have both. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect repost. OK. Um, my other question, the other thing I'd like to say is that I actually... I'm quite comfortable with appointing representatives to do things for me. 
I am so busy with all of the organisations I belong to who want to have me involved in all of their decisions, I don't have time to be involved in all those decisions. I trust people that I vote for, that I want to elect to go and do that for me. I've got creative things I'm doing with what I'm caring about, with my creative things for my own expression, for my children, for my family that I want to do, for my political work I want to do. I don't want to have to worry about all that sort of stuff. In the same way, like, you know, I was vice president of choice. I, I support having when I want to buy something, having somebody else help me, tell me. I don't want to have to go and do all that work. It's hard work to be a good consumer. I just wanted somebody to help me. So that's my provocative thing to you. I don't want to have to decide everything about everything. Now, I know that's not what democracy means, but it, sometimes it feels like that to me. Tough act to follow. Um, I'm reminded here of uh, Groucho Marx's uh, response to the question, coffee or tea? And it's, of course, it's, yes, please. Uh, so, yeah, I would agree with you that it seems to me that large and small governments enable us to do different sorts of things. But f- I guess to reflect a bit more on what I was saying last time, um, I think there's some serious curative or therapeutic work that needs to be done in order to rebuild an effective democratic culture. Um, I can remember a colleague of mine who works in Appalachia and the ex-mining communities there who have been dealing with 75 years of intergenerational trauma um, associated with that the mining industry. And you know, he, he really felt like people couldn't actually engage in the public sphere because of the kinds of depredations that they had been dealing with on an intergenerational basis. So the, the recovery of a, of a capacity to think collectively and make decisions, I think, requires serious effort on our part. I feel like I was going to say something else, too. Oh, yeah, another example. Um, I have a colleague who works in um, Maine on fisheries, and he uh, he witnessed something a number of years ago that really upended sort of the traditional way that that, uh, fishery issues are dealt with, right? Usually it's the state making big decisions about how to handle fisheries and communities suffering the consequences. So there's a tension here between limits on catches and how fishing communities survive. And um, his research intervention was essentially to create strategies for an adaptive co-management system. And these communities then turned around and started the first community-supported fisheries like CSAs in my country. And that model ended up spreading globally. So he took sort of an opposition and said, well, what if we actually considered the community as part of what we're conserving? And that changed the way biofisheries conservation got practiced, at least in that instance. So there's a potential complementarity there between local governance, autonomy, economic practice, and ultimately federal legislative policy. In his work, his name is Kevin St. Martin, he's gone on to basically add community as a data layer into fishery sciences, and that's had global implications. So my, my thought here is that, well, if that works for resource management, we could probably make it work for healthcare, and we could probably make it work for dealing with adequate mental health or addiction recovery services, right? Like, there's a template there um, for how the particular and the general can relate to one another. It's a, you know, an expansion of our collective capacity to act. Uh, but again, it requires work, and, and a particular kind of work, and yeah, we're all busy with meetings. So um, I think it's more a case of how do we integrate that practice into whatever it is that we're doing with that larger vision in mind. And I hope that's helpful in some way. 
So I think that, I mean, we, we devised this question because I think it is, act, I, I don't disagree that it's both, but I think it's also a tension um, in kind of the polit broader progressive politics or politics on the left. And there's a tension there around the role of the state and um, uh, how much trust actually we put in the state to do the thing, to do, to do the things we want it to do um, and, and how much, um, you know, because there is, as Joan mentioned, a, a shift towards um, uh, localisation, I guess, is the, the word that's used. And just reflecting um, a, a little bit more on what was said at the beginning about, um, about neoliberalism, one of the things that Wendy Brown writes about is um, neoliberalism not so much as a set of economic policies but as a political rationality. And so if you have a neoliberal state... Do we want? Do we trust the neoliberal state to do the things that we think that states should do? Make you know, make our lives better. Um, well, we don't, do we? <laughs> yes, um, and we shouldn't, right? We shouldn't because neoliberal states are operating from a, a set of values that aren't our values. They're they're operating from, you know, as Joan articulated, the sense of the economic dominates and the the values, the sorts of values that Stephen talked about at the beginning. Um, aren't reflected um, in the decisions of the of the state. So I think there's a question there about the nature of the state when we're when we're considering this this question. Um, and when when we when we were sort of um, pulling this session together, I was originally um, inspired uh, by Margaret um, thinking about framing the whole thing around uh, around energy systems because that's one of the areas where this debate around the state and centralised. Um, uh, provision of energy versus the sort of radical democratic potential of renewable energy. There again is a there's a there's a bit of a tension there now. We probably we, we need the state. I'm not saying we don't need the state, but um, the decisions the state makes around our energy systems are going to um, be reflective of whether or not. Um, we're going to be able to recognise the sort of democratic potential of renewable energy, or whether or not um, you know the state's going to hold on, um, and we're just going to you know see um, see a you know basically a neoliberal centralised renewable energy sector. Um, so I, I guess the the point of this one of the points of this question was to sort of acknowledge that there's a bit of a tension there, and it's one I think that we we need to you know be aware of and to to um, to you know keep thinking through and, and and have in the front of our minds when we're thinking about a bunch of this stuff. Um, and that's just one just that's just one example I think of of um, uh, of how that tension is going to play of where that tension is going to play out in the next the next uh, the next few years. Um, so thank you all very much. I hope you can all come to tomorrow's session at one forty five and thank you again to our panelists for their great content. <laughs>